0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to Prehistories. My name is Kim Biddulph and I'm fascinated by how we tell stories to each other all the time. And I'm especially fascinated because of my background about how we tell stories about prehistory. Um, Today we're discussing a graphic novel called Mesolith uh, that imagines the Mesolithic world of Northwest Europe and tells lots of stories about that. Um, I'm talking to Today, Matt Ritchie and the archaeologist of the Forestry Commission Scotland. Hello, Matt. Hello. I'm also uh, talking to John Swagger, who we talked to on the last episode. He's an archaeological comic writer and illustrator himself. Hello, John. Hello. Hello. And um, those dedicated listeners of mine will also remember Erin Kavanagh, um, who is a geomythologist. Hello, Erin. Hello. Hi, thank you so much, Erin. I know that you've got a little bit of a cough, so um, we will uh, try and um, help you through this. I hope you've got something to drink whilst you're uh, whilst you're talking to us tonight. Um, and so, uh, sadly, Katie Whitaker, who is also um, a comic writer, couldn't join us tonight, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but we'll have fun anyway, won't we? Yes. <laughs> So, um, I wanted to ask John. John, were you um, were you a bit put out when Ben Haggerty and Adam Brockbank uh, published this graphic novel?
2: <laughs> yes, I was. I <laughs> really, really was. I was because it, it was my idea first, mm. and <laughs> um, no, I think it's it's one of those ideas that was sort of kicking around at the back of my head when I first discovered that comics could do archaeology. And you think, yeah, you know, we could do this great mythological thing and set in prehistory, and so on. And of course. I think that the thing that um, Mieseleth really shows you is that there's a certain level of skill both in drawing and storytelling that you need in order to produce something like this. So although, yeah, I'm sure it was my idea at first, there's absolutely no way on earth that I would be able to produce something like this, which is why it's so wonderful to see it. <laughs>
1: It is. I mean, the um, biographies of the author and illustrator are pretty impressive, aren't they? Um, yes. With um, Ben Haggerty being a performance storyteller and he to- uh, tells lots of stories about um, uh, all lots of traditional folk tales, which I, I guess many of them are familiar to you, Erin. Uh, some of them are, yes. I hope you from spotting them. Oh, yes. And going, oh,
3: what's that? And struggling to remember what they are. And yeah. that, that's always a joy.
1: It is. It's quite good fun, actually, spotting all the, all the evidence in here and the stories. And Adam Brockbank, who is the illustrator of this, um, has worked on lots of... Is usually a storyboard artist for films working on Star Wars and X-Men and Harry Potter and amazing things like that. So um, it is a pretty good-looking book, isn't it?
2: it it's good-looking, and the, the, the really nice thing about it is to see people at that level wanting to put their skills in service of an archaeological story, which actually doesn't happen very often. Mm. Um, I think Age of Bronze, I mean, from a comics point of view, Age of Bronze is the other one that immediately springs to mind, where somebody's prepared to put a huge amount of time and effort and real skill um, into something that essentially is relatively obscure.
1: It is, isn't it? Although you know, it's it seems to be the Mesolithic of Northwest Europe. um, Does kind of capture people's imagination. I mean, Matt, you um, obviously worked quite closely with using Wolf Brother, which is a a book that we talked about before, isn't it, by Michelle Paver, um, which is set in basically the same era in the same place, um, making and and bringing out some of those the ideas in that for teachers um do you think you would do the same thing for mesolith is it, does it do something different
4: i think it, it does something really different um it's it is as john says graphic novel storytelling of the absolute highest caliber uh, so Be- ben haggerty is uh, and i'm reading off the back uh, of the bi- bi- biographies here is an honorary professor of storytelling at the arts university of berlin and adam Brockbank has worked on all the harry potter films these these guys are are grade A uh, um, graphic novel storytellers, mm. uh, and the quality shines through. So, in, and I'm not sure it's the, it's it's the Mesolithic setting that, that makes uh, uh, the book. It's actually the quality of the storytelling. The Mesolithic mm. is just the set, uh, and it's quite a simple, uh, quite an easily accessible set. Do you
1: think but so? But it is
4: just the set. Yeah, it's, it's the storytelling, whether it be from Eastern European myth whether it be from, just from Ben's imagination, um, it, it's the stories themselves that that shine through in this.
1: Yeah, because the Mes- uh, you're right, the, Mes- the Mesolithic is kind of a set, um, but do you think, Erin, do you think there's something special about that era that kind of captures our imagination? Or is it, or could it be set anywhere and weave all of these stories into it, or any time? <laughs> I think,
3: the, yeah, I think the latter, um... I'm I'm not sure how much it conveys Mesolithic information mm. uh, to I'm not saying it doesn't, but I again I agree that it, it's the quality of the storytelling um, and the, that captivates a reader more than the detail of the data, which is possibly the point.
1: I think as it sneaks in through the back door. Yes, yeah. I mean, obviously, I think the the most successful books that I've talked about um, that are set in prehistory and not driven by the evidence, they're driven by the story, um, and that is is the way it just has to be. Um, now, I should t- uh, so let's talk. A- I- I'm just gonna yeah. I'm gonna just kind of set the scene a bit more with the book and where it's set. It's supposed to be set in t- ten thousand years ago in Britain, and yet there are some. Some interesting points in the story that, um, where things have been brought for from basically all over Europe. Um, there's it's centered around a boy called Poika, is that's how I'm going to pronounce it anyway. Um, who's a bit of a risk taker and he causes lots of problems, um, and then kind of tries to get out of them as well. Um, so he gets gored by a bull at one point, which is obviously pretty serious in the Mesolithic. It gets taken by a rival tribe, and then there are stories that other people tell him. Um, there, what? So this, I mean, the story. Um, could, if you think it could be set anywhere, I think there is quite there is quite a lot of the Mesolithic, but it's in the there's really small details like there's a lovely uh, dugout boat, for instance. Um, mm. There's okay. a, a fishing spear. Uh, which has we've just kind of um that's just been found complete with the bone prongs and the flint in the middle um that it kind of looks like a trident really i suppose um that's features in there there's um uh star car antler frontlets obviously make a big part and they're part of the of the um of the hunting ceremony i mean did anyone else see anything that i mean what what's The Mesolithic. What was the Mesolithic actually like, Matt?
4: Um, I think it it is uh, as depicted within Wolf Brother, within Mesolith, and within things books like The Gathering Night by Margaret Elphinston. It's very much a, um, a, a, a a tales of survival. Uh, on on uh, uh, the, the coastal fringe or maybe in the in, in the wild woods uh, or indeed uh, up up in, uh, in the uplands as well. Uh, and I think it, it's it's a it's a set that lends itself to storytelling because it's so simple. it's almost like a, a desert island. Um, it, it, it's, it's something that people can can pretty quickly grasp. Uh, and, and what's interesting about Meslith is it, it started kind of slow uh, with a hunting scene. Um, and then starts to ramp up the cosmology of what these these people might have believed mm. um i think where 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 the archaeology comes in um there's some 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 really good uh um uh, parallels or 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 uh, um an um, anecdotes that they they've they've brought in from from real archaeological discoveries. Uh I think they sometimes drift a little so there's a little bit of paleolithic stuff in there like the cave art. <laughs> yes. And and so and and I but I don't really mind that and, and as long as as long as you're not being um uh overly worried about this being interpretation about being factual mm. uh and and you're quite happy with it being fictional. Then uh, the atmosphere that it gives of the Mesolithic, of what it must have been like to live in these small, tight family groups, uh, and to be continuously on the move, and uh, and always thinking seasonally and about what you what you were going to be doing next month, um, uh, whether you're doing that as a family group or whether you're meeting up as a tribal group, um, and it's 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 a really good insight into into what what it must have been like uh, in, in Mesolithic Europe.
1: Mm. I mean, I didn't get the sense that they moved around that much, actually. And obviously, we have got more evidence recently that people were staying still for um, for maybe 100 years in the same spot. Um, or at least some people staying there, like at Starkar or at Howick, where we've got houses that, st- that stand for a very long time. So, um, I mean, the, I don't get the sense when I look at the evidence of the Mesolithic that's coming out, that it actually was a period of just surviving, and as you say, as it comes out of the book, you do get out of Mesolith, you get a sense of that wider cosmology, particularly. I mean, um, uh, what what one thing that really worried me was about how women are portrayed in this. And I know you're worried about that as well, Erin. Um, and, and the gathering <laughs> night was much, much better in terms of the pre- representation of women's roles. Um, what was it that, uh, I mean, if you can describe, Erin, what how it looks in this book to be a woman in the Mesolithic? Oh, it, it, it's it's the Kardashians in
3: the, in the Mesolithic period, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's it's women in it's women in bikinis making themselves beautiful, looking for husbands, um, learning certain skills at home, such as sewing, but. They're not out hunting. Um, it, oh, it, for me, it spoils it. I think it, it's, it's such a small detail that could have been done just slightly differently, which would have completely changed the way it feels mm. to read from the perspective of female.
4: It's. It's the one story in the book, I think the one you're talking about, is, is when they, they find star husbands, that mm. it goes beyond the realm of the Mesolithic set and it turns into complete fantasy fiction. And it, it, it really jars, it sticks in the throat, that one story. I really don't like it. Um, it uh, yeah, but I, I agree with you. It's, it's, a, it's It does. It's a no-
3: the inclusion of the Star Wolf and the Star Fox is, is a stroke of genius because you've got the star Fox as a constellation in the in the northern hemisphere, and you've got a, the constellation of the Wolf in the southern hemisphere. So that's a fantastic way of geographically situating where the story is being told, um, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And you've got mythological references to the shape shifting. We don't know if they're brothers or if. So, there's a whole pantheon worldwide of mythologies that they encapsulate in that one story, which is fantastic. Just that on its own is a story. But the application for the women in there is painful. And yes, it's jarring. And That, for me, doesn't, that little bit doesn't work. Lift that story out, put it in another book.
1: Do you know what? In this context, no. I don't think that's in my version. Is that in Mesolith 2? Because there is a a sequel to that now. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get hold (laughs) of that. But I think. uh, Yes what's interesting in the first mesolith as well what i got from it was um that women are basically they're either maidens their mothers or their crones which is uh i mean i don't know if they went for that specifically to make yeah. an archetype to go for those archetypes or whether it was just um a slip again because you you know it does seem like a very limited range of things <laughs>
2: Well, and also it, it stands in quite interesting contrast to the three main men, you know, mm. the, the, the boy, the man and, the, and his father and the, I guess it's a the grandfather there. Because certainly at the beginning of the second book, they're portrayed as being outcasts, not outcasts, but being all broken and, you know, not not perfect and very different from the rest of the tribe. How do they refer to themselves? like hook hand. Limpy and something or other. Um, <laughs> they just just—they're just very kind of anti. They depict themselves very much as anti-heroes, and it's—it was nice to see that, so that they, you know, they weren't all sort of prehistoric superheroes. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny that that they didn't do the same with the female characters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to find to, to catch you
3: up. I, I completely agree, with John. Catch you up, for Two. Yeah, well, um, there, well the well, females. Oh, hooky, limpy baldy, that was it. That's it. Um, the female story in Mesoeth II is much stronger, um, but it, it's no less disconcerting. So there's a great ritual where the girls become women yeah. and paint themselves in what's called red fat in the students' face to the oak. Yeah. Um, and it's all about getting a husband. Right. And they're dressing themselves up to be beautiful get husbands and the star wolf well, star fox story that sounds too beautiful to work. Oh. and so oh. therefore they, they're going to have starry Wow my my rushing So they're gonna have star, starry husbands you see. Right. And then when that doesn't work and they realise they've still going to do go to the world. Now as an explanation for the constellation, it, it works beautifully. And when they're there, they meet um, a Venus, for the essentially, a huge woman who is breastfeeding um, a pair of male twins who are giants. Yeah. So you've got all these mythological and constellation related references in the story, yeah. which is great, apart from the fact that story is situated in an overriding narrative where women... As soon as they become mature, married off, and their focus is to be married off.
1: Yeah, and it—I don't—is this the? And that's it. That's all they do. That's all they do. Um, But in Star Story, in in the Star
3: Story, yes, they do. But but Star Story talks about them um, needing to be able to prepare a carcass. Have you ever tried preparing a carcass with a flint? It's really hard work, yeah. incredibly physically arduous. But these women are women aren't considered strong enough to be hunting. Now, I'm five foot two and I stone. I can hunt. I can shoot a bow and I can throw a spear. Yeah. I can hunt. Yeah, absolutely. I know I can't shoot a car a flint because I tried it.
1: But it's very really way in, in the in the book. Um, that's a bit problematic. So it's um, it does seem a shame because I think you know from ethnographic parallels it looks like in the hunter gatherer period hunter gatherer period of the Mesolithic and earlier there wasn't quite so much of this whole you know the women are only around to make babies and you know do the stuff at home um, it was slightly more equal and it would be nice to, I mean, I'm not, I do sometimes have a problem when, um, books about prehistory make it all too nice and too, and everything's so good and everybody, all these women have power and there's nothing wrong going on because, you know, we've been, I mean, clearly women were treated differently in the past and that's what we're struggling against. But, um, uh when you go into a period like the Mesolithic where it's it's possible that they were treated like you know or or did have some more power and more respect and lot and did lots and lots of work, it does seem a shame to, to get rid of that. Anyway <laughs> Anyway. Um so I really need to get hold of that Mesolith too. I think um the the first one as well does have um uh, loads of of uh, the, these kind of european folk tales embedded in it um like the i mean the swan woman who is buried actually at Vedbæk cemetery in denmark makes an appearance and that was it was lovely to see her but again her story is a little uh i suppose at least she does something she is she is the shaman where she goes and um uh gets eaten by fishes doesn't she as she in the story and then she comes back to life um which is kind of a nice shamanic thing to be doing so she has a little bit of power but then she becomes kind of the little wife who dies in childbirth so
4: <laughs> to, to be fair to be fair i think they they pack so much into the first book in terms of quality storytelling that it's i certainly didn't notice any uh, uh, gender um, uh, inequalities. Um, it is really just it's about Poika and what he gets up to, uh, and it's about the stories that are told around him, whether it be about the, the horror uh, of the big blue baby, the the, the man-eating Urga, um, or the, the the swan lord and his captive daughters, or the 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 the, the old. The old woman Corpy, the Raven woman, mm. who who has elements of the of, of Baba Yaga uh, and Eastern European myths, they they pack so much into that first book that uh, um, uh, you know I it's just, just swept away uh, in, in 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 the storytelling. Whereas you know, book, book two has its moments. Um, I'm not sure they're ever going to get round to a book three. Mm. Uh, I hope they do, but uh, uh, book one stands stands on its own, as one of the greatest pieces of uh, creative archaeological narrative reconstruction that I've ever read. Uh, I, I think it, it really is fantastic. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to um, uh, worry too much about, um, uh, you know, the, the archaeology of it or, or, or the... Uh, um, the, the, the social aspects of it, because it's just a great piece of storytelling.
1: Uh, well, I'd, li- I'd I'd like to uh, beg to differ, but uh, we're going to take a little break right now, and then when we come back, we'll um, argue a little bit more about this.
5: a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology video games anarchism and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks he destroys them available on iTunes every fortnight
1: Hello and uh, welcome back. Now we're um, it's getting a little bit heated, so maybe we should move on to a, to a, not talking about the representation of women. But I just want to say, right at the beginning of Mesolith one, Poika says, "I don't want to stay behind whilst you go hunting. Stay behind with the women and the weak." So there you go. Anyway, po- uh, my I rest my case. Um, <laughs> now, John, the uh, Matt has mentioned that quite a lot of the imagery in this is kind of. From horror films, is um, and it that seems to be a thing in a lot of graphic novels. Was that necessary? Do you think in this, or it's? I mean, I, I'm not saying I don't like it, but what do you think?
2: Uh, well, it's fun to draw, I suppose. <laughs> um, I, I think what 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 is interesting about Mesolith is that I think in a lot of archaeological contexts, people try and keep the the real, quote unquote, the real and the supernatural separate in terms of style, stylistic approach. Mm. And it's interesting that both in Mesolith and in Age of Bronze, the the writer, both the writers and the artists have taken a completely the completely opposite approach, which is to make the supernatural and the real in the same style. Mm. So you're never really certain whether what you're seeing is real or supernatural. Yeah. And it, it's an interesting, it's a very kind of anti-archaeological approach where we're very careful to separate out things which are, you know, more plausible from things that are less plausible in our interpretations. And I think that's what makes Mesolith feel so different from most archaeological texts. Mm. Mm.
1: But also is it that, uh, I mean, we're always saying that people in the past wouldn't have separated out the, the real and the metaphysical quite so much as we do. Um, mm. And is, does, is it uh, possibly a, a, a um, need to kind of show that a, uh,
2: yeah, well, yes, I, I suppose so, but then if, if you think about it, neither do we. If all the lights go out, if the power goes, oh. <laughs> and you're stuck in a building that you don't know, by you imagine all sorts of things, yeah. and it's not just imagine them, you genuinely see them, you genuinely think that somebody is 10 feet away from you coming to get you or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, think it's a, I think it's a very, um, it's, it's a necessary way to show that kind of feeling, which we, we generally don't talk about, we generally don't acknowledge, and, and we do put it in our horror films and so on but uh, you know as you were saying there's a lot of kind of horror film or horror genre uh, imagery in the books and i think that's that's their way of telling us this is this is that kind of moment
1: because mm. a big blue baby <laughs> um that turns into a flesh-eating monster is uh is mm. pretty disturbing and i Ooh. I wondered, is that based, Does anybody have any knowledge of any f- traditional tales that tell about flesh-eating demon babies? Does anyone know, Erin?
4: I I did ask my my wife. No, port- as
1: I've found yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I wondered because I mean, there's some of them are clearly going to be um, uh, are from traditional tales, like the Swan Woman, but the but some of them I wasn't I wasn't so sure. Okay. okay. Um, Mesolith
0: 2 has two giant babies in it, Ken. Does it really? So if they do a third one, we're, we're going to be in the, the triplet <laughs> range. Right. The the folk stories about, that they've included run between Ireland and Russia. Mm. And there's this fantastic mix of, of Irish and Russian tales with a bit of... Flemish and a bit of Dutch and a bit of Danish thrown in there and quite a lot of Japanese actually yeah. with the swan archetype even the way she's drawn and the the tales that are, are told within that
1: but she is um but
0: she is I mean that's but also as for the the giant baby it's the eternally hungry baby, it, it's almost, for me, a, a metaphor of what having a baby in this space is like, <laughs> in that they're a darn sight bigger than they physically are and they are perpetually <laughs> hungry. So it, it's back to that physical, metaphysical reality twist where the, the two sides blur yeah. um, and what appears to be yeah. is is not tangible. Yeah. Held. And go on, go on. That's how I've taken it. Um, going back to what I don't know about everybody else.
4: Going back to what John said, I, I thought was that that very the, the how you the blue baby yeah. is then repeated throughout the book right. because the, that that tale has clearly sunk into Poika's head and he starts thinking yeah. he sees the blue baby right. when he's in the cave. When he's at the, yeah. the the cliff looking at the cloud, yeah. that blue baby has, has has really made an impression. Made an impression on me as well. Yeah, but, it's uh, a pretty. Um... It's pretty
1: scary thing. I mean, I also thought that it was a, a metaphor for um, the the kind of the germs inside him that are the infection inside him that he has to then beat when he's when he's lying recovering from his wound. Mm. <laughs> I mean, one of the, so the, the swan woman that we mentioned, we've talked about her quite a lot. Um, I mean, that's also the Wayland's the, the Smith's tale, isn't it? So there's completely bound in. And what's interesting is that, at that, that, uh, that burial is a real burial with a, a young woman and a little baby that clearly died in childbirth being buried on a swan's wing. Um, so could it be, there was some, um, some interesting historical linguistic research recently, wasn't there, that some of our um, fairy tales uh, might go back all the way to the Bronze Age and even earlier. Um, and um, does, do you think this, this kind of is an example of one of those?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's clearly the idea, isn't it? It's clearly the idea that um, as a storyteller... You want to make those kind of connections. You want to try and explore those kind of connections. And again, that's something we we tend not to do in formal archaeological texts. Mm. It just seems all too, you know, subjective. But it's 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 really nice to see somebody doing it.
4: I think w- when I when I commission a reconstruction drawing. Um, I always think of uh, there's there's two different ways about going about doing it. You you can do the traditional archaeological reconstruction drawing, which is always based on archaeological evidence. It's it's demonstrating things like how people dressed, it's demonstrating the construction of buildings, mm-hmm. uh, it's an overview of a settlement, it's maybe how you used an artifact, and that's that's quite a traditional way of looking at mm-hmm. it. Um, but you can also have the the creative narrative reconstruction, uh, which which looks at exploring place or myth. Or, or the concept of prehistory, but in a more creative way, uh, but that's not necessarily reconstruction. And I think we're, we're as, a, as a discipline, we're, we're now more happy with the idea that you can have uh, both that um, interpretative, archaeological, uh, uh, very much demonstrating the science, uh, and, and you can have that interpretative, creative narrative where you're actually trying to tell a story uh, and, and what mesolith is to me is is just a, a really really high quality um uh, example of that creative narrative reconstruction where you've said yeah look it's based in in uh in, in archaeology it's based in, in in prehistory what we know or what we think of the mesolithic but actually we've just let the storytellers go wild mm. uh, and as long as you know that then uh, it's certainly something that i would put into kid's hands. And go look, read that. Uh, if you want to know more, then then go and read a book about the Mesolithic. But it, it, it you know it, it is what it is. It's just a really, really good example. And, but, and isn't
2: actually that that part of the problem there is that the first kind of reconstruction you're talking about, you know, the very specific one, is the one that archaeologists use. Mm-hmm. They want to know how the t- was used or made or whatever. But it's the second kind that non-archaeologists are interested Absolutely.
4: in. Oh, Absolutely i'd hope to think that we're moving beyond just that rigid Uh, rigid.
2: yes i yes i i I, that would be very nice but i think it's it's i think archaeology as a discipline still doesn't know how to make best use of those second kinds yes they might you know we might like them um, as individuals and, and yes certain directors or project managers will commission them for whatever reason but it's it's how, how do you use that? How do you actually use that in archaeology that I think that, that question still hasn't really been... Being fully answered properly to the point where people will produce that second kind instinctively.
1: Mm. I know that all three of you are really working on that second kind of um, archaeological interpretation, and it, either through comics or commissioning, or through your work, Erin, um, in poetry and so and storytelling, and um, and the geomythology. And um, but how how widespread actually is it? I think that's you know. It would be lovely if as you say it becomes more instinctual but are people still afraid of commissioning and doing this kind of work
4: if i could can i jump in there yeah. it's, it's done and john mentioned it earlier it's down to money mm. it's it's mesolith is it's properly high caliber stuff mm-hmm. and to do that you have to get the best storytellers the best graphic novels and to do that you then have to lose mid- be a bit of the control that most archaeologists would want in the interpretation of their site—you actually have to hand it over to the artists and just say, "Look, you know, get on with it." Yeah. Um, that's that, you know that we we do have to um, we have to be honest with ourselves and say that, that there's interpretation, there's factual interpretation, and then there's letting the creatives get on with it.
2: And, and I think a lot more of that would be done if we could come
0: oh, up. Oh, could I come in there? I. I- Go on, Erin. Sorry. Um, Facts are still facts and fiction is still fiction. For me, where there is factual data, I like to see a story stick to it because there are enough gaps in between the facts for the fiction to run wild. Um, So where there are details that that can be anchored down into data as known at the time of creation of a piece of work. I do think that should be accurately represented. And I'm a little wary with Mesolith 2 with aspects of that, um, particularly in relation to the the hunting of horses, which is a very contestable um, topic. And the way they've shown it. I I can't fit any archaeological data to match the way they've shown it. And that for me is problematic. Um, I
3: fully but agree I'm very,
0: very happy to have the blurring, that fact fiction blurring in the representation. Does that t- make sense?
4: I totally yeah. agree with you. I, I think if when we're looking at trying to to be more creative with 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 archaeology and, and with the sites or places or artifacts that we're trying to explain, um, we need to be very clear about um, the, the the including the methodology. If if you're doing archaeological reconstruction or archaeological narrative or indeed archaeological mm-hmm. visualization, then you have to base it in the science and have an element of the science and the methodology within that. Otherwise, you're just going into the completely creative narrative stuff, which is great. We all love it. Um, and there's a, there's, a, yes. A, a, yes. A, there's an a element of projects or, or, or commissioning projects or running projects that we should think about doing that because it's what, what uh, the, the outreach and what people really like. But I think that there's this there's, there's a kind of blurred zone in, in between. Um, where uh, cle- I think if we were clever about it, a bit canny about it, um, we could get some really good work done creatively, but based on the archaeology.
1: Yes, mm. Mm. John, you were trying to to say something earlier. Is yes. that a good point? And and Major lift Two doesn't do that.
2: No, no. Yeah, no. I think Mazulis
1: Two doesn't doesn't do that for me. No. No. Um, yeah. Sorry, John. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with all this, um, and I think one of the things that um, archaeology and archaeological visualizers of all kinds need to work on is a way of doing that, is a way of signalling in a work what evidence is used for for what elements of it, and and what elements of it is are based on this degree of speculation, and so on, which in itself is quite a difficult thing to it do. Is. How um, would you
1: and, approach it, John?
2: Um, <laughs> I, this is one of the things that we tried to do out at, at Chatelier when I was illustrator there, is, is exactly that, come up with a way of doing it. And the best way we could do it, the, rest, the best idea I suppose we had at the time was to try and incorporate all kinds of, you know, hovers and hyperlinks and stuff that would, in a, in a digital image, would allow you to sort of pop windows out, the kind of primitive form of GIS. But I found that, I found that problematic because you could still extract the image away from all that information. Mm. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up with comics because it was so it was much more difficult to extract the text and the, the sort of explanatory part of the information away from the image. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still I'm still thinking that that is the direction that I would head um, to do to do that kind of signposting. Um, I'm not sure how you do it in other kinds of media or in other ways.
1: Yeah, because I've seen it in other in picture books uh, for younger children. Because Mesolith I wouldn't give to a. a an aged seven-year-old, who are the people studying the Stone Age, in in England anyway, um, is is to have uh, information at the back of the book saying, oh, look, this is the real object and this is where it came from. Um, And that's quite nice, but it does bring it back to that whole factual thing um, away from the story. Mm-hmm. And that it, but then, how else do you do it? Do you have footnotes or something? <laughs> and well, that I, would really ruin it, there, wouldn't it? <laughs>
2: can I jump in? There are, there are lessons. There are lessons. I think in some, wanted, the Japanese approach. Oh, sorry. Everybody
1: wanted to jump in on that one. <laughs> uh, Matt, we haven't heard. Of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the
4: the best archaeological creative narrative and and reconstruction that I have ever seen. Mm. Right, and that you need a drum roll at this point. But it's a uh, St- Stephen Beastley, who's a is a really good uh, graphic uh, designer or illustrator, and it was way back when when I was a kid, and they were um, the the, the timelines uh, of time travels with the, with Osborne time travels uh, with the Vikings in particular, where the kid put on uh, a kind of time traveling helmet uh, and would then go and float to basic to all extents and purposes over a scene from the Viking age um and they were they were creative in that there was lots going on there's lots of people in there whether it be uh, attacking a, a monastery or building a, a Viking boat um, but they were informative because there's lots of little you know captions like John says you can't you, you actually can't disentangle the, the the information from the narrative it's all in there you have to see the whole as, as you look mm. at it. Um, and I thought that that and I, well, I always say that the, the Stephen Beastly <laughs> Osborns were brilliant. Um, mm.
1: Sorry, Erin, you wanted to say something. I think Maiselith,
0: yeah, I think Mesolith does this very well. Uh, actually, as as John had said before about the way it, it interweaves um, the the metaphysical with the physical and the data with with the mythological my my quibble is that the data isn't always accurate data and so then you Mm. where where the information is is coming from that that i do find problematic and i have just remembered actually in relation to your earlier question about the blue baby Mm. in that the color blue is generically taken to mean creation um, so it's often used within creation myths to indicate the other so Kali, Krishna yeah. etc, that, that colour of indigo,
1: so maybe there's, there's an element of that going in with the, the blue babies Oh, that's interesting, well right now we have to take a quick break, I know it's getting really interesting, we'll be back in a couple of minutes
4: all these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology but we don't do dinosaurs no.
5: Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show
4: be blokes you will see are a staple of
1: archaeology hi and we're back again so um, th- we're, we're quite uh, having quite a lot of uh, discussion over this Mesolith book which is may or may not be set in the Mesolithic with uh, the use of its its um, uh, evidence from all over the place or not all or lack of evidence and its create uh, where it's created the ideas now we were talking about whether or not these books need to be grounded more in um evidence where the evidence exists um but part of the of what I like about Meslith, and I think you mentioned it before, Matt, about um, how he ends up... It's supposed to be set in Britain, but he ends up in Lascaux for some reason. And then possibly Chauvet Cave as well in the south of France, where there, where there's all the, the handprints or at least the hand negatives on the wall. Um, I, I, there are other uh, caves that have those handprints, not so much in Lascaux, I don't think. Um, and... Uh, obviously, you've got the Danish stuff coming in, and you've and and Erin, you've talked about all the different myths coming from all over the place. Um, and um, Matt, you did say you would be happy to give this to a child and say, read that, and then find out something else. Uh, you know, read something a, a proper book. <laughs> well, you didn't. No, I'm putting words into your mouth. You didn't say a proper book about the Mesolithic. <laughs> I but did, kinda.
4: kinda. <laughs> um, I'm. I, I think that the, there's these are, are really, really interesting books because of what they say about us as archaeologists. Mm. Um, we, we can't tell Ben Haggerty and Adam Brockback how to display the Mesolithic. No, no.
1: They're, they're telling yeah. stories
4: using the Mesolithic as a set, um, and they're doing a really good job of yeah. it. And I think... What, what we lack, what, what we're not very good at as a discipline, is picking up on that kind of uh, creative angle um and, and actually funding it properly mm. to deliver our own aims so mm. we we wait for tv to turn up and film our sites and then moan that they're not doing it properly or, <laughs> well, or, or we, we, we we wait for the press. we maybe we put a press release about something and we moan that the press don't cover yeah. it properly if we want to do it properly we have to put in money and time and investment in terms of resources in terms of of, of pro- using similar high quality yeah. visuals similar high quality stories that, that that speak to a wider range of people than maybe just the, the archaeological enthusiast um and and does and delivers more than just the the interpretation panel on site yeah. which is always the lowest common denominator yeah.
2: mm-hmm. and
4: that, that that's what really gets me that that you know we we can tell a tale um when it's delivered in three small paragraphs that that get progressively more detailed because we know that most people just stop reading after the first paragraph and look at a picture. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to take the challenge that's been thrown down by something like Mesolith and say that this is a great way of delivering archaeological methodology and information. Um uh, as well as the the, the 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 story that comes out of it in terms of prehistory, um, but to do that and to retain control, and I do beg- I'm sorry, I'm beginning to ram. We have to. We have to try and do it. Yeah, else.
1: and I know you're very committed to, to commissioning this kind of work. Um, uh, and you've pre-produced yeah. the lovely stuff. Sorry, Erin. Yeah. Um. I mean, some of us are doing mm.
0: this. Um. There, there's no shortage of people capable of doing it. The the problem, as you you were stressing, is, is mm-hmm. funding and that the funding consistently comes from the science side. Um, and, I mean, I, I get up as a matter of course, but people look horrified when they realise they've got to pay for poetry, they've got to pay for artwork, <laughs> they've got to pay for cartoons, they've got to pay for theatre, they've got to pay for film. <laughs> Um, they're quite happy to pay me to go and put in a borehole, mm-hmm. or take people on a science walk, mm-hmm. and and that's a cultural issue to the do culture, with finance it is, and where we place importance. The it's,
1: it's not a lack of um, skill set within the no. discipline. I agree. There is some amazingly creative people out there. Yeah, I don't. I think the, the discipline actually. Uh, has has got these mm. skills. Yeah, I mean, definitely. All the people, uh, most of the people. Um, we we're just not uh, funded. No most of the people i've talked to on this podcast and many people have met um elsewhere in archaeology have got so many amazing skills um and doing some brilliant stuff um like you erin and like for instance the team build and burn um kenneth brophy and um gavin mckenzie doing their uh, brilliant mm. events where they they build something and then burn it massive event it's absolutely great um and um the your comics john and katie Whitaker, we talked to and hannah sackett doing some lovely um comic illustrations as well um and love i I take my hat off to all illustrators actually i just think it it, they you tell a story in um so many brilliant ways um but john um it, it there is this issue isn't there where um artists are supposed to give their work for free for some reason
2: Yes, yes. I think particularly where the sciences are involved, uh, it, as, you know, it where the second rung on the ladder or the second tier or whatever, there's always this sense that it's not quite as important as yeah. the science, um, as I was saying. Um, and it's, yeah, it it puts a lot of people off and it puts a lot of people within the discipline taking those skills that they have or those ideas that they have any further than just, you know, a particular level. And that's why I think... Internally, archaeology will always struggle to produce something like like Mesolith, just as I think, unfortunately, archaeology struggles to produce really good quality um, 3D computer graphics for the same reason, that it's just not seen as important enough for people to, to get the funding and, and the training and the opportunities to move beyond a certain level. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, but i i work with the public all the time and i oh, with children and yeah, cause we, we have to eat yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> just, just a little. little and you know a bit of bread and water but you you know you mm. you have amazing skills and which you've spent and not each <laughs> other
5: either
1: <laughs> spent years and years um developing and honing and um you know, it's it's an amazing thing that needs to be uh, well rewarded. Uh, I mean, when I talk to um, children and and other people, families, and who are, that's my main um, audience when I'm not on the podcast, um, going out and actually talking to people, um, it's this kind of stuff that they they really engage with and really want because uh, you know you you're not going to nobody's going to go out there and read an archaeological report and i read the reports and i make them interesting to people when i meet them um and and pick out the the really cool stuff and i wish that um it was more possible to to as you say to put more money into 3d reconstructions and um comics and great um tv shows and things like that how do we how do we go forward with this how do we can we put something together to uh some kind of um funding bid for something or other come on i think
2: i mean i think it really has to start from from the ground up from the grassroots up and at tag, it's not
1: even sorry go on john
2: oh at tag at tag this year we had them um, the the citations yeah. cafe and people were showing all sorts of really interesting visualization projects they were working on there was this general agreement in the discussion mm. But one of the things that is lacking in archaeology is not, it, it, one of the problems that has happened in archaeology is not de-skilling in terms of visualization, which is one of, you know, sort of a, a buzz phrase or an idea that's been kicking around for about 15 years, but a general lack of visual awareness. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't even go as, as far as the skills. It stops at awareness. And it feels like too many people within archaeology don't treat visualization as important for anything. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have these dreadful PowerPoint lectures where, you know, people just read from slides or that's why if you're working in as, a, as an art editor in a journal, you get maps that you can't read. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's less the skills and more just the appreciation that <laughs> visualisation is mm. important.
1: Erin, you were going to say something. Yeah, uh, can I come in, mm. come in
0: there? Uh, I, I completely and utterly agree agree with John. that Yes. Um, and then, But then from working... Um, outside of the academy it's getting the tourist groups, uh, the councils, uh, the galleries etc to work with experts to check the data that they're using because money is being put into eye beacons, it's being put into reconstructions, Mm. it's just they're not being fact checked
3: Mm. Mm.
0: so you computer graphics mm. and you look at them and you go but the sea wasn't there <laughs> why, why is the sea there nobody thought to consult an archaeologist
4: mm-hmm.
0: and and I see this again and again and again and even when we go to the meetings and say we will do this for free they still don't use us wow. and so the, the the problem is more than just within the the profession of archaeology mm. it's it's Outside of it, and the view that archaeology, mm. ha- the the way people view archaeology from, from the outside, the, a non-archeological that's perspective, really interesting. Mm.
3: Um,
0: it, it isn't given the level of, of respect. Where they'll get a mathematician mm. to check something. That's <laughs> um, you know, they'll get a historian sometimes to check things, but they they
1: don't listen to the archaeologists. <laughs> How do we change that? So, I mean, really, that's the opposite of what we're talking about, isn't it? It's almost like there's two problems, in that the archaeologists are mm-hmm. not engaging with um, with visualization very well, um, and different ways of, sh- of of showing their evidence. But also, the people who are doing that are not talking to the archaeologists. So, we really need to form some kind of forum where we can all get together yeah. and and chat. I-
2: can I, just, can I just give an example of, of, of the only yeah. example I know, actually, of where that boundary was really successfully yeah. crossed? There's a, a classicist at Nottingham called um, Stephen Hodkinson, and he was called in as the advisor on a graphic novel called 300, which was about um, mm-hmm. the Spartans. Sorry, not 300, but three, which was a graphic novel sort of to counter um, the over-the-topness right. of 300. Um and he so much enjoyed his experience working as an, as an advisor to a, a top-level um, writer and artist team that he decided to start to start creating his own graphic novel or his own graphic informational material about Sparta. But he is very much an old, and, and I'm sure you wouldn't mind me describing him, so he's very much an old-school classicist. You know, he looks like an old-school classicist, he dresses like an old-school <laughs> classicist, he has the, the, eye, the eye and the mind for detail of an old school classist. But at the same time, he also somehow understands that it is important for him to communicate well with an an audience outside academia. And he's doing a fantastic job. I mean, he does a lot of public lectures and, and now he's interested in comics. So I, I think it is possible. And I think people like him need to be brought into the fold to ask, what what made you jump across the line? You know, what made you cross that boundary? What made you see... This kind of art-based outreach mm. is important. Um, just, just
1: yeah. As an example. And what would you say, John, to people who are wanting to to actually get into comic? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. <laughs> Sorry, Erin. Um, uh, what to get into um, comic r- creation? What would yeah. you say? <sighs> Any advice? <laughs>
2: Uh, read a lot of comics. <laughs> um, I, I think the first thing to do is to make yourself familiar with the medium. So yeah, reading a lot of comics is important. But also, as we've been talking about, think about how your data is can be translated into a story without leaving any of that data behind. Um, I think it's possible, but I don't mm. think I, I don't think you necessarily need to go to the scale that Miselet does. Actually, it's quite interesting that Miselet is written in a series of, of chapters, each one as a sort of standalone story. If you have a particularly interesting burial or a particularly interesting artifact or a particularly interesting se- sequence of events in a trench, you can turn that into a story without necessarily having to have, you know, a beginning, middle and end from <laughs> from the Neolithic all the way up until the Industrial Revolution. You know, it's not necessary to do that kind of grand narrative. You can make these little snapshot portrait, uh, sort of postcard. Mm.
0: things. Erin, sorry, I interrupted you. I think I forgot what I was going to say. I, I completely agree with John. And actually, he, you saying that at, at TAG was, was um, a boon to me because it made me realise I didn't have to bring and writing an entire novel. Mm. I could think about drawing and writing individual mm. stories. Um, and, and that made the whole concept suddenly so much more mm. attainable. Um, but there, there are lots of people who, who are availing themselves mm. of, you know, tourist boards and, and TV groups and uh, schools, etc., um, in this advisory capacity. But what I keep experiencing is that we're there, we go to the meetings, we give the information, we offer the, the advice, um, but then we get overruled on the, oh, but this looks pretty, <laughs> brutes. Well, we were following the story. I think that did happen. Yes, but you are now giving the wrong information. (laughs)
2: And I I think that did that did certainly happen to Stephen, and he gave a very interesting um, presentation about it. And I think that's what then made him realise that if he wanted to have less of those kind of moments, he had to take charge of the whole process himself. So he went out and found an artist.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Um, so absolutely. So, so Matt, we just have to we have to put ourselves out there. We have to do it.
4: If, if if you want to do it properly, you've got to mm-hmm, do it yourself. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that to get the quality <laughs> of somebody like Meslith, uh, Ben Haggerty, Adam Brockman, even 300, which uh, I will stand by as, as an exceptionally great piece of storytelling uh, in terms of uh, Bronze Age Greece, um, you it. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to do it. But we can aim high, but we have to do it ourselves. So it's not about uh, offering ourselves up to, 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 to others to, to help uh, advise or or to... Uh, uh, um, it, it is about making sure that the importance of visualization within archaeology is always uh, front and center within any project or, or any book, any booklet, in any interpretation. It's the images that count. Uh, and it's the storytelling behind the images. Um, and it's the, the information that backs up that storytelling. Uh, and it's about that conscious decision about whether you want to do it creatively uh, and, and, and you want to make it uh, very clear that this is imagination, this is fiction, or you're doing it uh, trying to be more factual about it uh, and you're trying to be more or uh, a construction based on evidence uh, in which case uh, it's all about the caption um, but uh, I, I going back to, to, to what folk have said earlier on visualization is absolutely key uh, to archaeology and to in terms of to talking about archaeology what we think about what we found, um, we, can, we can do it textually uh, where we're just talking to ourselves. we do it by, by illustration, by visualization, uh, we're, we're bringing in the wider audience. Uh, and, and uh, we, ha- we have to put in money. You have, you have to put in resource, time and effort and, and it's shocking uh, if, if as a discipline, uh, we, we've all we've lost that because we used to have it. It used to be front and center of, of, of many uh, many archaeological publications. Uh, it was that plan the beautiful plan right at the start uh, or, or the, the reconstruction drawing at the end. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, visualization mm. is key and we have to keep pushing that.
1: Yeah. Yes. And with Mesolith, I think that because of the beautiful visual visualization, it, um, and the, the, the format of the book and the quality of it, it's really kind of bringing that archaeology to new audiences that will not necessarily have thought about that period or this, or archaeology or prehistory or any of that at all. Now, sadly, we've got mm-hmm. to bring to this podcast to an end it's gone so quickly because we've been um just constant back and forth it's been brilliant talking to you and arguing with you um thank you very much everybody i knew that you'd be a great set of guests so (laughs) can i say thank you very much to erin for uh, for soldiering through you didn't cough once erin uh muting the mic is a wonderful thing (laughs) well done thank you so thank you for Um, having me thank you and thank you very much john uh, it's been brilliant to talk to you.
2: Yeah. Mm, thank you and very thank much. Thank you,
1: Matt. Um, it's you've you did rant a little bit, but that we we love that <laughs> absolutely love that.
2: Really <laughs>
4: Good. No,
1: don't. don't Apologise. Um, now, um, I think that uh, we all know how to how to contact <laughs> all of you, and I will put links to your Twitter or uh, websites on in the show notes if people want to contact you um, and ask you to do some work, or maybe in Matt's case, ask you for money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so that would that that be really good? Thank <laughs> you. And um, what? Yeah, (laughs) fun does.
4: Fun does. It's now now the time I should sing. It's the age of austerity to uh, the the (laughs) age of Aquarius, yes,
1: yes. Well, maybe not after June the 8th. Who knows? But uh, let's not get political um, or any more political. Um, So thank you so much. It's been really good fun. Um, uh, Tune in to the next episode of uh prehistories where I'm gonna be talking to Jane Brain and Andrew Fitzpatrick about um a new book that Jane has uh both drawn and written because it is isn't it is a graphic novel really. Yes it is yeah. Um and uh it's about the Amesbury Archer. And she was the first person to ever draw the Amesbury Archer and now she's drawn his life. So that should be a really really interesting one as well. So I hope that you tune in for that one and thank you very much for listening today.
2: This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at
1: www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.